So you, you may have recognized you're getting a lot of me this morning. Um, normally we have multiple pastors on stage, but Pastor Daniel is away on study leave, and so uh, you get me today. So I'm excited to be with you this morning, and we are continuing in our sermon series in 1 John entitled Light and Love. Uh, if you haven't been with us, this is our third week. In 1 John, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. I ask if you're able, would you stand now for the reading of God's Word? This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked." Prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would give me the courage to get out of your way so that you can bring your truth to us, your people. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A few weeks ago, shortly after I left worship here on Sunday morning, I headed over to the hospital to visit a couple uh, from our church who wasn't able to attend worship that Sunday. They weren't able to attend because their son was in the cardiac NICU and would be undergoing surgery in a few days. And it grieves me to admit that this was not the first time that I've had to visit a Christ Central family in this unit of the hospital. And as I prepared to enter into this cardiac NICU, I was reminded of the faces of the parents that I saw the last time I was there, full of fear and sadness, and for many, despair. And then when I finally turned the corner and came to the room where this Christ Central family was staying, I didn't know what I was going to find. I didn't know what I was getting into. What I saw in many ways was very similar. The couple's faces were both full of fear and sadness, but there was something that was missing. There was no despair. In fact, you couldn't help but recognize that in their eyes was this hope. And as I talked with them, as I had many times before, I could hear it. In the face of all this sadness and fear, there was a hope. Hope rooted in assurance rooted in the unshakable realization, the conviction 
that God was still on his throne, that this same God was intimately acquainted with them and with their little boy. To use the words of the apostle John, they had an assurance of their fellowship with this God, that they were in him. Church, this life is hard. And if you haven't yet tasted its hurt, its pain, its grief, you will. And it's because this life is hard, because this world hurts so bad that we desperately need assurance. We need to know that we know that we have fellowship with the God of the universe, that we are children of the King. And thankfully, this assurance is at the heart of John's letter. As Daniel showed us last week, one of the ways that we find assurance according to John is through what we believe. More specifically, from our belief that we are sinful sinners and yet we have an advocate. Verse 1, Jesus Christ the righteous who has dealt with our sin once and for all. And as Daniel reminded us last week, if you believe that, you can know that you are a Christian. And yet our text this morning reveals that there's more. There's more assurance to be had. Here in chapter 2, John says that not only do we find assurance in what we believe, but also in what we do. And so that's what we're going to be engaging this morning. As we examine our lives, the conduct of our lives, we find even greater assurance that we belong to the king. I have three points this morning. First, the obedience test. Second, the gospel and obedience. And then lastly, a new way to walk. Let's begin. The obedience test. As I was thinking about the fact that John offers us this test, I couldn't help but remember the most traumatic test experience that I had as an early child. I remember being in elementary school. Some of you may have had similar experiences And what had happened was that this educator of mine had decided that she wanted to help equip us to read instructions better. And so she created this test, or maybe she borrowed it, but at the top of the test, there was this obnoxiously long list of instructions. And if you just so happened to read all the way through the instructions, the very last instruction was only answer questions one through three. And for those of us who chose to ignore the obnoxiously long list of instructions, we would dive right into the meat of the test. And then after you finished the first three questions, you began to enter into this profound humiliation. And so the next few questions were things like, now stand up in your chair and state your name, or clap ten times, or do a little dance. And so me, being a studious student, began to plow through these obnoxious questions and was celebrated for my gross lack of understanding for how the test worked. But it actually worked. I learned through that experience that it's important that we understand the parameters, the instructions for the test. If not, we won't get the right results. It's so important here as we begin to look in chapter 2 and John is giving us this test that we understand the instructions, the parameters 
It's important because our assurance is at stake. If we're not taking the right test, we won't get the right results. So look again with me at our text starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, this is, I think, a better translation, the love for God is perfected. So before we take this test, I want to first address two wrong ways of looking at this test that will produce incorrect results. First, what we see here and what we know is true is that John is not saying that assurance comes from perfect obedience. It's very important that we recognize this, that, that John is not saying the only way to be assured that you are a Christian is for there to be no sin whatsoever in your life. How do we know that John's not saying that? I'm about to drop a bomb on you. I want you to pay attention. Make sure you're listening. This is huge. The reason we know that is because chapter 2 comes after chapter 1. I know that's pretty, that's pretty insightful. But it's so important that we understand that this is a letter and there's order here. And what John is saying in chapter 2 builds on the foundation that he's laid in chapter 1. The reason that we know that John is not arguing for perfect obedience as a measure of authentic relationship with God is because he said in chapter 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So unless John has profoundly changed his mind in a span of three verses, we can rest assured that John is not calling for perfect obedience as the measure of authentic faith. Secondly, John is also not saying that our obedience merits us our relationship with God. We have to be so careful not to read this wrong theology into the text. To think that John is saying that if we keep the commandments, then God will deem us worthy to be in relationship with him. Once again, if we look back at chapter 1, we, re we were reminded the only reason that we are worthy for a relationship with Jesus Christ is because we have an advocate. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, has dealt with our sin. And so it's not our own merit, but Christ's merit that makes us worthy. Therefore, understanding those two things, we can now take the test. And we need to recognize what kind of test this is that John is asking us to take. It's pass-fail. I hate those tests. It's so scary. The, there's no middle ground. John leaves no room for maybe you kind of passed and you're okay a little bit. But we either pass or we fail. We either obey and know him or we do not obey and the truth is not in us. But how does that work? How does that work since we know that perfect obedience is impossible? I want to commend to you here the words of John Calvin on this text. This is what he says. He says, this does not mean that only those who wholly satisfy the law in keeping his commandments have assurance. And then he makes this side comment seeing as no such instance can be found in the world. No one perfectly obeys the law 
And then Calvin continues, but rather those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity, human weakness, to form their life in obedience to God, they are the ones who have assurance. What's Calvin saying? What's John getting at? He's saying when you look at your life, we are looking for an evidence of striving, of longing, a fight to form your life in obedience to God. And this distinction is so important because I don't know about you, but when I look at my own life, I see evidence of the same sin patterns repeating themselves over and over again. When I examine the conduct of my life, I see patterns of being impatient, of living for the approval of others, of dishonoring God with my tongue and so many other sins. And I see these sins coming back again and again and again. And yet in the midst of those sin patterns, in light of what John says, I find assurance. And the reason I find assurance is because I'm grieved by those sins. I hate them. And I look back at my life and I see this battle going on. There's a war at play in my life. So I'm trying to fight and conquer and overcome the sin in my life. This life is hard and we need assurance. And John is charging us to look at our lives. And, and church, if you don't see that evidence of a passion for obedience, a hatred of your sin, and a willingness to wage war, then you should rightly be concerned. That's what John's saying. If you find yourself walking in sin and you could care less, then John is saying the truth is not in you. And church, we need to take that very seriously. Which leads us to our second point, the gospel and obedience. How can John make such an audacious claim? On what basis is he arguing that the lack of obedience is evidence of a lack of faith? While I was in seminary, one of my professors, Dr. John Frame, one of the greatest theologians of our time, in my opinion, offered this incredible contribution to the church. This has been probably his greatest gift to the church, and it's, this, it's the way he codified something that is pervasive throughout Scripture but often hard to recognize. Dr. Frame calls this triperspectivalism. He made that word up. It's this idea that human beings engage life from three perspectives and that those perspectives are always interconnected. It's this idea that we engage life with our heads and our hearts and our hands. Or maybe said differently, that we are thinking, feeling, doing beings. And what the Bible reveals time and time again is that we cannot separate these three perspectives from one another. They are always interacting with one another. Make it plain, Pastor. What are you talking about? The point is that my thoughts are always affecting my feelings and my actions. My feelings are affecting what I think and do. And my actions are always affecting my thoughts and feelings. Let me give you an example. I love golf. I'm not very good at it, but I, I love the game. And my feeling of love for golf impacts my beliefs. I often believe that I could, if I could play more golf, I'd be more happy. 
it's, it's probably not true, but I, I sometimes convince myself that it is. And, and it's these feelings and beliefs that motivate me to action. Whenever I get a chance, I play. But it works the other way around too, right? Often when I'm doing things that is affecting my beliefs and feelings. For example, if I go on the golf course and I have a wonderful round, it affects my beliefs. I become more convinced that golf is truly the source of happiness. And then I might go do something silly like buy a new golf club. Or I go out and play terrible. And I realize actually I hate golf and golf is from the enemy. It's the spawn of Satan and I need to get rid of my golf clubs and throw them away. It's, it's amazing how our life is this dance between our feelings and our thoughts and our actions. And that's what John is getting at here in our text. That's how he's able to make these claims because he recognizes how our human being works. Look again at verse 5 and listen for the three perspectives he says, but whoever keeps his word, hands, in him truly love for God is perfected, heart. By this we know, head, that we are in him. And now you can begin to see how what John is saying here connects with chapter 1 that Daniel preached on last week. And now we can see how John can so confidently say that assurance comes from our actions because John knows that if we truly believe what Daniel preached last week, that we are sinful sinners and that we have an advocate named Jesus Christ who has dealt with our sin, that our head will inevitably impact our hands. It's why verse 3 and 4 makes so much sense because we can say that we know him, but if we truly believe, there is no belief that does not affect our life. There is no belief that you could possibly have that doesn't change the way you live your life. And so that's how John can say it's not possible. It's impossible for you to know God and not obey his commandments. It's on this basis that James can make one of the most controversial comments in all of Scripture. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is not arguing that obedience causes faith, but rather that we are triperspectival beings, thinking, feeling, doing beings, that we can't have a faith that does not change the way we live our lives. So in light of these words, I ask you and I ask myself this morning, are you striving to form your life in obedience to God? Are you grieved by your sin? Are you willing to fight? If so, then John says that you should rest assured that you have saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you are, verse 5, in him. But if not, this test should alarm you because Jesus makes plain that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because authentic Christianity, a real relationship with Jesus, impacts the whole person. It always necessarily does. Therefore, a life marked by disobedience should necessarily cause us to question whether the truth is really in us. If that's you this morning, I'm so glad that you're here, and I want to rejoice in the fact that God has revealed this to you. And if you are realizing as you examine your life that the truth is not in you, I would love to talk with you. 
I'd love to meet with you and show you what it looks like to cultivate an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, one that impacts the whole person, the head, the heart, and the hands. And for those of us who do have assurance, the question remains, what do we now do with this assurance? Which brings us to our final point, a new way to walk. You see, there's a potential danger when assurance is promised, isn't there? When we get the get out of jail free card. The danger is that we might become passive. We might become lazy. And John recognizes this, and so he finishes this section by leaving this period of examination and moving to exhortation. Look at verse 6. He says, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If John were had to continue in the same vein, he would have more simply said, whoever abides in him walks in the same way in which he walked. But instead he adds this word ought. Whoever abides in him ought to walk, signifying that John is calling us to something. He's exhorting us to something greater. And this bold statement that he is making is that although our assurance is rooted in our striving, in our longing, in our passion to pursue obedience and holiness, the goal is actually much higher than just striving. The goal is to walk as Jesus walked. And if that doesn't alarm you, then I don't think you know who Jesus is. Because when I compare my walk to Jesus' walk, I can't help but say, woe is me. It's not even close. Never has there been a person who loved and served and gave so beautifully and perfectly. And John is finishing by calling us to walk that way, to live as he walked. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I think the order of this text is so profoundly important, as we've said before. Chapter 2 comes after chapter 1. All of what is said in chapter 1 is what we need in order to prepare us for this challenge to walk as Jesus walked. And I want to focus in on this last verse once again, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It says that he abides. I heard a pastor this past week share a story about an interaction he had with a security guard at a school where one of his children attended. And this pastor arrived at the school early one morning and noticed that the security guard arrived to work on a bike. And the pastor began to question. He was confused about how this happened. And the pastor knew that there were a lot of hills and valleys around this school. And so he began to ask the security guard, how, how far away do you live from this school? How did you get here on this bike? And, and then when the security guard told him where he lived, the, the pastor became even more dumbfounded, knowing that this distance was far too great and that the, the hills and valleys, we're talking Lance Armstrong-esque morning bike ride. 
and the pastor's looking at the security card, and he doesn't look like Lance Armstrong, so he's trying to figure out how in the world this happened. And so he just musters up some boldness and says, I don't understand. How did you do it? How do you possibly get here every day on this bike? I don't believe it. And the security guard looked at him with a smirk and said, you don't get it. He said, look at my bike. The pastor looked down at his bike, and he didn't notice anything in particular. It looked like a normal bike with pedals and handlebars. And, and then the guard said, look closer. He said, see that little black box down there by the pedals? That's a motor. He said, see this button on the handlebar? That's how I turn it on. So whenever I come to a hill, I just hit that button, and off we go. What a beautiful illustration of the Christian life. So often we start out on this journey and we think we've got it. We're pedaling along and we come to the first big hill, first major temptation to sin. And off we go. We're giving it everything we've got. We make it a little ways. Ultimately, we just can't do it. We fail. We fall to sin. But we resolve we're going to come back the next day. Tomorrow I'm going to conquer this. We come back to that big hill get all our strength up, and maybe we make it a little bit further this time. But ultimately, we, we still fail. So we begin to get discouraged, becoming more and more convinced that we're never going to make it. There must be something wrong with me. It's not cut out for this whole Christianity thing. And then when we're just about to give up, we meet a friend who's going on the same path and says, hey, can I ride with you? Sure, but... I don't think you understand. I don't think I can make it. I'm, I think I'm about to give up. But we, we go with this friend. And then we get to that hill and, 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 and we start off and we start pedaling as hard as we can. And our friend is looking over at us and is kind of smiling, kind of chuckling. And we look back and say, what's so funny? What's the big deal? And he says, don't you know? Do you not know what that little black box is? You just flip that button the box is going to take you up that hill. What we see in verse 5 is, verse 6, is that we have forgotten this beautiful doctrine of the Holy Spirit in us. Christ's Spirit is in us. If we abide in him, our assurance is that he is in us. The God who created the universe, who calmed the storm, who healed the sick, he is in you. He's the black box. It's his power, his strength that enables you to get up that hill. And it's not until we, and I confess, it's not until I realize I can't do it. I can't make it. But I have the spirit of God in me. And I lean into him. I press that button through prayer. I say, God, help me. And all of a sudden, I'm filled with his power, and I'm climbing the hill. Brothers and sisters, we have an assurance. And what comes with that assurance is the knowledge of the reality of the Spirit of God in you. And it's his Spirit that enables you to walk as he walked. Just a moment, we're going to sing one of my favorite hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. 
It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us, that reminder of the assurance that we have. And what it produces in us is this hope, a hope that we can make it, that by his strength we can walk as he walked. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess that so often I'm trying to do it on my own, which is evidence that I don't believe the truth that who I am is based entirely on who you are and what you've done. That it's your power in me that has brought me to life and empowers me to walk in obedience, to walk as your son Jesus walked. Father, I pray that each one of us would rest in that truth. And as we seek to live out this life that you've called us to, that seems impossible, that we would embrace the impossibility and cry out to you for your strength to carry on. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.